Hi, this is Kim. Welcome back to Weber County's Greatest Generation and happy 2021. The book is complete, but I do want to make some edits to it. And I've also discovered some um, deaths in 1943 that weren't included. So I'm going to add those so that it will be more complete. But if you are interested in a book, just message me on the Facebook page, Weber County's Greatest Generation, and I can give you more details. So we've been really busy with um, Don Milne and Stories Behind the Stars effort to get all of the deceased from Weber County in World War II on full three. It's been a major effort, and it's called Stories Behind the Stars if you want to look it up. Um, he's doing this all over the United States, and so it's a great thing to be able to read the stories of the individual men who were killed. So as I've been researching, I've been really struck by the differences in some of the um, men who were killed. For instance, in 1942, Weber County had three 17-year-olds killed, but we also have some very accomplished and educated men who died in the war. Today's story is one of those. It's about Private Hubert Wayne McFarland. And don't let his rank fool you. He's one of the most accomplished of the Weber County men who died in the war, and he is also the first to die in the Atlantic Ocean. Wayne, as he was known to his family and friends, was born on August 25, 1917, in St. George, Utah, to Hubert Adams and Ora Bell Orton McFarland. At the age of four weeks, he moved with his parents to Salt Lake, and two years later, they came to Ogden and resided at 1137 12th Street. His dad, Hubert, was the principal of the Mount Fort School. He graduated from Ogden High School, Weber College, which was a two-year college at the time, and Brigham Young University, where he received a Bachelor of Science degree in Chemistry and Physics. From 1937 to 39, he served an LDS mission in Switzerland, and he was among the last of the missionaries to be evacuated from Europe following the outbreak of World War II. He left from a port in France on October 22, 1939. And this was just a few weeks after Hitler had invaded Poland on September 1st of 1939. He was inducted on August 10th of 1942, entered the army, and was assigned to basic training in medical administration at Camp Barkley in Texas. He was stationed for a short time at Fort Slocum, New York, and then transferred to Camp Miles Standish, Massachusetts, where he was a medical technician until he was sent overseas. When I started researching World War II history, I was surprised by all the events on the Atlantic Ocean. Um, I'd never really heard about it, but it is called the Battle of the Atlantic, and it is considered the longest continuous military campaign in the war. So this battle pitted U-boats and other German warships along with the Luftwaffe and was designed to disrupt and destroy the Allied convoys bringing in supplies for the troops, not to mention the needs of the civilian populations in Europe. As a small country, Britain was dependent on imported goods in order to survive and fight, and it required more than a million tons of imported material every week, and the U.S. was struggling to keep them supplied. On the other side, Hitler knew that if he could disrupt merchant shipping, he could win the war. The campaign started immediately after the war in Europe began and lasted until the Germans surrendered in 1945. It involved thousands of ships. And at the end, it was a strategic victory for the Allies, but 3,500 merchant ships and 175 warships were sunk in the Atlantic. 
Germany lost 783 U-boats, 47 warships, and including four battleships, one being the Bismarck. So one thing I found really interesting is that after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, they mandated the Pacific coast go to blackouts. But they never did that on the Atlantic coast. Um, for, for the whole war, they never declared that the Atlantic coast had to have blackouts. And so the Germans could actually spot the ships by the silhouettes. In the first few months of the war, they sunk over 156,000 tons of supplies without a single loss. And as the convoys got stronger, the Germans moved farther out into the Atlantic. So we're going to go back to the story of Private McFarland, who is going to be on the Dorchester. The Dorchester was an army transport ship that was launched on March 20th, 1926 for the Merchants and Miner Transportation Company. On a routine run, she would carry up to 314 passengers and a crew of 90 along the east coast between Miami and Boston. After the war started, she was requisitioned by the military and converted to a troop ship. She was outfitted with four 20mm guns and a 50 caliber gun 4 and a 50 caliber gun aft. And she started service in February of 1942 and she was crewed by many of the former officers. In addition, she was fitted with additional lifeboats and life rafts. Private McFarland's last letter to his parents was written when he was on the Atlantic on the Dorchester. He said that he was on an unusual assignment with which he was intrigued. Quote, for at last, I feel I am doing good for someone. But his family would never find out what that was exactly. The Dorchester left New York Harbor on January 23, 1943, bound for Greenland, carrying 902 officers, servicemen, and civilian workers. She was escorted by three Coast Guard cutters. On February 2nd, one of the cutters detected the presence of a U-boat, but they were unable to locate the position. The CL started evasive maneuvers, but did not use their lights or radio. The men were ordered to sleep in their clothing with their life jackets close at hand. They were only 150 miles from Greenland, and daylight would bring them air cover. The official report of what happens next said the weather was clear, there was no moonlight, and the sea was smooth. At 3.55 a.m., something exploded without warning in the vicinity of the engine room. The report states the explosion was muffled, there was very little noise but considerable concussion, the vessel swung to starboard, and the engines apparently been stopped by the flooding in the engine room. The shell of the ship was ruptured a few feet aft of midship. Some of the bulkhead were destroyed. Flooding was very rapid with flying debris. Number four lifeboat was believed to have been holed by fragments. Number seven lifeboat had been smashed beyond use. Six blasts of the whistle indicated the vessel had been torpedoed on the starboard side. No enemy craft were sighted from the ship and no counteroffensive was taken. At 3.58, three minutes after the first hit, the order came to abandon ship. An attempt to blow the abandoned ship signal on the whistle was made, but it was only partly completed because of the loss of steam. Some of the crew and passengers left the ship, but others stayed on board. Number six lifeboat had about 51 persons with five hanging on and was located and rescued by the U.S. Coast Guard, Escanaba. Number 13 lifeboat was found and rescued by the Comanche. The remainder of the survivors and the known dead were on lifeboats or in the water, 
But of the 14 lifeboats, only number six and number 13 were successful in getting away from the ship. Number two lifeboat was lowered successfully, but was swamped by the excessive number of persons trying to get in it. Number four capsized almost as soon as it was lowered. It was not known whether it was due to overcrowding or damage from the attack. Number nine lifeboat was hanging by the davit, which is the small crane used to lower it, and never made it into the water. Number eight boat was not lowered. The seaman assigned to it had no one to assist him, so he joined in number six and assisted in lowering it. The Comanche rescued 97 persons between 5 a.m. and 12.30 p.m. All survivors and 13 bodies were taken to Greenland and landed at 6 a.m. on February 4th. The reports state that there was apparently no panic during the abandoned ship operations. Some lifeboats were swamped due to overcrowding. But it continues that many of the passengers did not realize the seriousness of the situation. And when the vessel went down, many persons were standing motionless on the decks, apparently making no effort to leave the ship. The final report estimated that the total number of persons aboard was 904. Of those, 130 were in the crew. It was also reported that there were 24 Navy armed guard, and of the survivors, there were four U.S. Army officers, 131 U.S. Army personnel, 28 merchant marines, 44 contractors, three Danish citizens en route to Greenland, 12 Navy personnel, seven Coast Guard personnel. The total number of survivors was 229, of which 73 were admitted to the U.S. Army Hospital on Greenland, 14 known dead were buried in Greenland, and the balance of 661 were reported missing, including Private McFarland. Now, the Dorchester was made famous because it is the ship of the four chaplains who were on board, Lieutenant George Fox, Methodist, Lieutenant Alexander Good, Jewish, Lieutenant John Washington, Catholic, and Lieutenant Clark B. Poling, Reformed. During the night before the attack, the chaplains circulated among the frightened young men, and they chatted with the troops trying to ease the tension and pass out soda crackers to alleviate seasickness. When the torpedoes struck, the tremendous explosion threw the soldiers from their bunks, and all of the inside lights went out as the Dorchester began to sink. Those who weren't trapped rushed topside amid the shrieks of the escaping steam and the frantic blast of the whistle, Dazed men stumbled about the crowded deck, some to grip the rails and refused to let go. The chaplains moved quickly among the men, trying to calm them and directing them to lifeboats. Many had forgotten their life jackets when they got out of bed. The chaplains located a supply in a deck locker and started handing them out. When the bin was empty, they each took off their own life jacket and gave them to others to put on. The four chaplains then linked arms, their heads bowed in prayer, as the Dorchester sank beneath the waves. One of the survivors later recalled watching the astonishing sight. When giving their life jackets, Rabbi Good did not call out for a Jew. Father Washington did not call out for a Catholic, nor did Pulling call out for a Protestant. They simply gave their jackets to the next in line. He said, it was the finest thing I have ever seen or hope to see on this side of heaven. In 1949, there was a U.S. postage stamp worth three cents that was issued in their honor. On February 14, 1943, the Standard reported H.A. McFarland, principal at Mount Fort Junior High School, 
received Saturday the wire of an adjutant general's office in the U.S. Army informing him that his son, Private H.A. McFarland, was reported missing in action in the North American area since February 2nd. Private McFarland enlisted in the Army August 10, 1942. He is a graduate of Weber College and Brigham Young University. He fulfilled admission for the LDS Church in Switzerland from 1937 to 1939. On May 23rd, an article in the Standard read, Ogden Soldier receives posthumous hero award, posthumous award of the Purple Heart to Private H. Wayne McFarland, son of Mr. and Mrs. H. A. McFarland of 1137-12th, who was reported to have lost his life as a result of enemy action in the North Atlantic is announced. News of the award was received by Mr. and Mrs. McFarland in a letter which stated, quote, This award is made as evidence of the nation's recognition of military merit and courage and to honor the memory of your brave soldier who died as a result of enemy action. It's interesting to me that they reported in the North Atlantic, and that must have confused the McFarlands, because as far as the newspapers were going, there was no action in the North Atlantic, so they must have wondered for a long time exactly what happened to their son. Private McFarland is honored on this Place of Remembrance monument in the Ogden Cemetery, and if you ever get a chance, go up there. It's on the very east side of the cemetery. Um, it's very it's very um, peaceful there. There are 73 men who died during the war whose bodies were never recovered. So thanks for joining. Remember, the podcast is available on iTunes and on my Facebook page, Weber County's Greatest Generation.